Welcome to a new episode of an Ells of the Rheumatic Diseases podcast. I'm Dr. Paul Surnik from Austria, and today we will be talking to Dr. Safiya Ramiero from the Söderland Medical Center and Professor Robert Landerey as well from the Söderland Medical Center, as well as the Amsterdam Rheumatology Center, both located in the Netherlands. So please, uh, may I ask you to quickly uh, provide uh, with an overview on what you are doing and who you are actually. Thank you very much, for Paul, for the introduction and for the invitation for this podcast. My name is Sofia Romero. I'm a rheumatologist, as uh, you mentioned, from the Zuiderland Medical Center. It's a hospital in the south of the Netherlands. I'm also a senior researcher from Leiden University Medical Center in Leiden, both in the Netherlands. And today I will be presenting you or be discussing with you a study that we conducted uh, in our hospital in Zuiderland Medical Center. Well, thank you, Sophia. My name is uh, Robert Landewey. I said also working in the same hospital in the south of the country, the Zuiderland uh, Medical Center. And um, apart from that, I am a professor in Amsterdam, in the Amsterdam Rheumatology Center, the Amsterdam University. Um, my work is um, clinical work in part. I see patients, as most of the listeners to this podcast uh, too. I do that in the Zuiderland Hospital. And uh, apart from that, I'm busy in research, uh, doing everything that you can summarize under the term clinical epidemiology. And uh, that is actually also uh, the background for the particular study that we will discuss uh, in this podcast. So, Paul, back to you. So, thank you very much um, and a warm welcome to being with us today. Uh, it is really great to have the opportunity to discuss the now recently published uh, study, Historically Controlled Comparison of Glucocorticoids with or without Tocilizumab versus Supportive Care Only in Patients with COVID-19-Associated Cytokine Storm Syndrome results of the Schick study. And I would say that at the very beginning, what I found uh, interesting is to hear the story on how you set up this collaboration, because there are far more authors on that paper as well uh, that all had uh, their part to play. And it is an interesting setup um, on how it, this developed and also how quickly you could do that back in March where things were evolving that Fast. Well, the size of the pandemic in, in the Netherlands and the way we were hit in the south of the Netherlands drove us to, to start this. In the middle of March, there were so many admitted patients in our hospital that the pulmonology department, primarily responsible for them, realized that it would be uh, too much uh, for them to handle on their own. So they asked actually all medical specialists to get involved into a COVID team. So we also rheumatologists let uh, at that moment our regular uh, activities in the rheumatology department, we left them and we integrated the COVID team. In the beginning, as, as everywhere else in the world, the treatment of COVID was mainly supportive care which means that patients were admitted when they were in respiratory failure, just so they were admitted so they, they could get oxygen therapy. We also gave them antibiotics, but most of the times they did not have a secondary bacterial infection, so that was not really helping them. We gave them chloroquine because it was in our treatment protocol at that time. We were hoping that it would work, and that was the, the, the knowledge that there was worldwide and this was mainly it. I have to tell you that my first shift was a bit depressing in the sense of 
thinking, is this all that we are offering to patients? That is not much. And then I thought, uh, well, if this is all, then it would be better to try to offer them something else and to try to, to set up some research. So that was part of one of the thought and the feeling with it. Other part of the thought is us realizing with the first weeks being on call and with this experience of, of the whole team, that we were seeing patients that had hyperinflammatory response. So patients that were having a high uh, acute phase reactance, namely CRP, ferritin, and even D-dimer. And we were recognizing and seeing, in the beginning, we started recognizing this more when there were young patients with this presentation, patients that presented with a a CT thorax, so from the lungs, with a lot of inflammation. You really looked at the, the CTs, you really saw white lungs. And we started really thinking this is more than, than the virus and this is what we recognize from autoimmune diseases. And we started recognizing what we call the, the cytokine storm syndrome. And that is where we rheumatologists also feel more, more comfortable in what we recognize from the autoimmune diseases. So we really started to think that there would be a rationale to, to do immunosuppression suppression in those patients and try to help them to go through the moment when they were struggling more with the disease, perhaps because of that hyperinflammatory uh, stage. And, and together at that moment, we also uh, started inquiring. The pandemic was uh, further already in Italy, in Spain, and several colleagues had already experienced with immunosuppression, um, glucocorticoids, tocilizumab, or several others, but mainly individual cases or experience on them, but not yet really studies set up. So we thought this is the moment to think about combining both ideas. And at that moment, we were thinking about designing a randomized control trial. And maybe now I give the word back to Robert, because that's when we discussed study together and when we had the shift. Yeah, you told it very beautifully and exactly how it went. The only thing I want to add is, well, many people, many journalists over the last week also have asked me how we as rheumatologists became involved. And I think when I came back from holiday on, on March 1, of course, I heard about uh, Corona and, and COVID, but didn't have the slightest impression that I would ever become involved in treating patients with COVID-19, which I thought was a very severe flu, and I don't know anything about flu. And it is exactly as Sophia said, that only when we were confronted with these patients and it truly became very close to uh, chaos in the hospital, all those patients, in fact, we have seen 750 in a time period of a little bit more than two months. And when I say 750, it means 750 admissions. So the patients with mild COVID weren't admitted to the hospital. We only admitted in the hospital those patients that needed oxygen support at least. But when we saw those patients, indeed, that hyperinflammation became extremely obvious, and that reminded us all in rheumatology of other patients with rheumatological conditions that we have seen over the years with states of hyperinflammation. The only difference was usually we saw one, maybe two every year with different conditions. And here, all of a sudden, we saw more than hundreds of these patients appearing on the ward. So it was a very chaotic situation, and I would like to stress very much the extreme time pressure in which everything um, actually went by, because when Sophia is explaining the protocol, in fact, we are talking about a two-day period between writing the design of the study and getting approval from the Medical Ethics Committee 
as well as the uh, board of directors of the hospital. The critical element over there was that we had to make a decision between observational study or treatment protocol versus randomized control trial. And both Sophia and I are trialists and uh, we are immersed in evidence-based medicine. And obviously, when you wake us up in the middle of the night at three, we always will immediately say that you should do an RCT. And here we decided not to do that, not because we don't think that an RCT is a good means of finding a solution for such a problem, but rather because we found it unethical. Those patients that we saw had a likelihood of more than 40% to die of that disease. If you have to ask patients with an a priori likelihood of 40% of dying, you have to explain how the situation is. And in that particular scenario, no single patient will actually allow entrance in a clinical trial with a 50% likelihood of not being treated, even though standard of care is not the same as not being treated. But we were certain that every patient and every doctor immediately realized that standard of care would mean 40% mortality. That, in our minds, was an unacceptable situation. And that is why we thought, well, everything is better than doing nothing. Let us do this protocol and see where it goes. This is really quite a story and, and seeing and hearing of the experiences uh, and the developments in March and in particular uh, also this very fast approval process of that kind of experimental protocol at that point. Before going more into the design of the study and some, I would like to address why did you choose totilizumab then as so first prednisone and totilizumab after that? I would like to put the focus on our first choice. So we put our first choice on methylprednisolone because we thought it is a, a drug with which we have a wide experience. It's easily available and it has a wide uh, spectrum of, of activity inhibiting uh, the immune response. And we were convinced that that would help uh, several patients. Still, we wanted to have a second step in case patients would not uh, respond to methylprednisolone and give them an option to be treated with a more selective interleukin in inhibition. And at that point, we chose tocilizumab mainly because of the rationale of IL-6 inhibition being more directive approach than the inhibition we achieve with methylprednisolone. And also because at that moment, we heard more individual case reports of experience of especially abroad in Italy and Spain of successful uh, experience, experiments, individual cases with tocilizumab. Back then, we already had the rationale that it's not specifically tocilizumab perhaps that makes the difference, but a more selective cytokine inhibition after a broader inhibition like methylprednisolone eventually fails. So that was the setup, a more a broader inhibition. And if it failed, then a more selective inhibition. And in that case, we used uh, tocilizumab. Well, you may say a more popular wording of our choice of tocilizumab is that you can you can mention this rumor-based medicine. <laughs> it it was actually we were flying blindly. We did not know what to do. We saw hyperinflammation. There were a few positive reports on tocilizumab. In fact, we had a very positive own experience in a patient at an age of 23 who recovered immediately after the administration of tocilizumab, and that was a very severely ill patient. 
I was pretty convinced that he would not have made it uh, without Torsalism up. So that shapes your mind. And then the rumors came from, uh, from abroad, from China, from Italy, uh, from Spain, not to forget. And uh, in fact, we decided to choose our treatment protocol based on, on what seems rational. Hyperinflammation should be inhibited. What is our best inhibitor? That is glucocorticoids. And we used similar uh, treatment schemes as usual in, in, in severe vasculitis patients, etc. So that is how we came to our choice. And tocilizumab uh, as a second choice was further um, based on the fact that there is indeed a, a small indication for patients who have developed cytokine storm um, uh, after the administration of CAR T-cells in uh, hematology in, in patients with uh, severe hematological diseases. So that is more or less the, the rationale for choosing methylprednisolone and tocilizumab. Mm-hmm. I was also going to add what Robert just mentioned, especially because at this moment we had already decided we would not go for a trial, which means that this protocol became standard treatment in our hospital. And we felt that with tocilizumab, we could be a little bit more certain of the fact that it has uh, an indication for cytokine storm syndrome. So it has an approved indication for that. And it would be a little bit less of label than anything else, than another choice. So this was another reason for choosing it. Good arguments through the line uh, going for tocilizumab at that point. So could you briefly maybe um, uh, go into the design part of the study? And then in particular, since you said it's not a classical RCT, but you tried to do kind of a pseudo-randomization using also patients that have been treated previously and that have been uh, implemented in this Elvis register that you have um, uh, in in your region there where where COVID patients have been uh, followed up. Sure. So as we mentioned, we started with this protocol that was implemented the 1st of April. So that means at that moment, all patients that were suspected for having a cytokine storm syndrome, they would be discussed with us, a group of experts. And there were come the the rest of the team that you see as co-authors of the paper. Several of them belonged to this multidisciplinary uh, uh, meeting that we had daily. And when I mean daily means seven days per week during the whole period when the pandemic was very active in the south of the Netherlands. Uh, So it was two months. And and so patients that were suspected for having cytokine storm syndrome would be either discussed with us to be started uh, with methylprednisolone or when they fulfilled the criteria and there were no doubts, the clinicians already started methylprednisolone on those patients. And then we every day discussed patients and monitored how they were doing with, with treatment and whether they were improving, which of course would rather see, or especially if they were not improving or staying the same, then we would uh, two days later take the decision to move to the next step of the treatment and then in this case to silizumab. After, so patients in general to, had five days of methylprednisolone, but if after five days we felt that they had improved but that the inflammation was not yet completely diminished, then we extended the methylprednisolone for two more days. So this was the setup of the patients that were treated. So patients were discussed with the whole team. The whole team also decided on whether the patients really had a cytokine storm syndrome or not. 
But then we went to compare those patients and the outcomes of those patients with patients that had been admitted during the three weeks before, so the last three weeks of, of March, and that had not been uh, receiving the, this treatment. But in order to exactly find a pseudomorandomization, we really wanted to have patients that were as similar as possible with the patients that we included uh, in, in the protocol. So that means not only patients that were admitted with COVID, but patients that were suspected for having a cytokine storm syndrome. That was uh, defined by the clinical presentation, by a acute uh, worsening of the respiratory status of the patient's need for uh, oxygen therapy, but that was anyway almost the, the criterion for admission as we did not admit patients if they did not need uh, oxygen uh, therapy. And together with that, we looked at inflammatory parameters in, in the blood, namely a CRP above 100, ferritin above 900, or a ferritin that doubled its value in 48 hours, or a D-dimer above 1500. These were arbitrary cutoffs, but our cutoffs that we decide upon to be a bit more specific on a cytokine storm syndrome. At that moment, we wanted to be certain of what we were doing and to try uh, to really test our hypothesis, to test uh, immune suppression in patients that, that had uh, cytokine storm syndrome. And so in those patients that were admitted in the first weeks of March, we used exactly the same criteria and we individually analyzed the medical chart. So two independent doctors did it without looking at the outcome of the patients to decide whether or not the patient would be classified as having a cytokine storm syndrome. In the back of their minds was the idea if this patient would be admitted now, would this be a candidate for immunosuppression? So that we can find a suitable uh, comparator for the patients that were being included in the treatment protocol and being treated with methylprednisolone, eventually tocilizumab, if necessary. So that brought us to uh, an, a number. We had 106 patients in the control group and we had 92 patients in the treatment group. And when we brought them together, we then additionally matched them by sex and by age so that we could have a matching of one-to-one -one for each patient in the treatment group with immunosuppression. We would have one patient from the control group, so treated with supportive care only and matched by age and uh, gender. I don't know if you want to add something, Robert. No, I think it's, it's very important to, to realize that this was not a classical observational study, so to say. One of the major pitfalls of a classical observational study in which you compare um, treatment A versus treatment B is confounding by indication. That means that, in fact, in the end, the doctor decides whether or not the patient is suitable for a particular treatment. And this study, by default, by definition, could not have confounding by indication because all the patients in the first period before the protocol was running, all those patients were not treated. And all those patients in the second period, after the protocol had initiated, were treated. So there was no doctor involved in making a decision. So could you quickly summarize the main findings? Uh, what was the highlight of the study? So a strategy combining uh, glucocorticoids and eventually uh, tocilizumab in patients insufficiently responding to glucocorticoids led to 80% uh, more improvements in, in patients treated compared to patients uh, treated with supportive care only. 
65% less mortality and 70% less need for mechanical ventilation. Additionally, in the patients, so in the 80% in clinical improvement, so patients treated with immunosuppression uh, showed more clinical improvement, and that clinical improvement happened faster, happened seven days faster than in patients with supportive care only. Since we are still in a learning phase and everything is still quickly evolving and there are uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands of papers out there on COVID currently, um, how would you continue with that story? Would you, at that point, uh, go for a classic RCT? Um, would you use that approach again in the next scenario for, for another hypothesis, for a follow-up hypothesis? Yeah, let me answer that one, uh, Paul. Um, it's a question that has been asked many times uh, already, and it's a very difficult question because uh, uh, rationally, uh, without further thinking about that, you would say, well, yes, we need confirmation in an RCT. But that will not be a simple story. Uh, first of all, this was not one treatment that you can test in an RCT. It was actually a sequence or a strategy of treatments. And already in the article, we described how important that multidisciplinary team was in making decisions. And, and that means this would become a pragmatic trial. And then still, what would be in the control group? The usual standard of care of two months ago, that doesn't suffice anymore. It would not be ethical. So it, it would be extremely difficult. Um, Although everybody will say, well, this has to be formally uh, tested in an RCT, I personally don't know how to do that RCT and what components to include. I think we will have to wait on several, on the results of several ongoing RCTs with tocilizumab, other cytokine inhibitors, maybe that comes more with dexamethasone or methylprednisolone, and then see and combine what is possible. And I'm not so sure personally if we will do an RCT in due time. I would add that uh, I think we will do RCTs, but with using some type of immunosuppression as the comparator. So building on it, as Robert just mentioned, and no longer placebo-controlled trials, because I don't think they will be ethical, just as Robert mentioned. But if we have uh, now eventually more cases of, of COVID and this remains an issue, I think there are many things that we don't know in terms of treatment and they can be tested and investigated, but in a more quiet environment. Back in March, we were really struggling with a 40% mortality rate if we didn't do anything. If we change that by having a control arm in which we use uh, immune suppression, eventually if a strategy like this, then we can compare whether it's better to uh, add a specific uh, cytokine inhibitor or whether it's better to treat before with that or not. There are many questions we can then test, but then we get in a more adult scenario to conduct research and to try to look for an optimal treatment. Sure, like uh, the more options there on the table, um, placebo becomes uh, increasingly unethical, like with rheumatoid arthritis, where placebo arms are, are no longer existing for many years already. So thank you very much for the time and contributing to this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you all for joining us on this Annals of Dramatic Diseases podcast. And if you would like to read the full paper, please visit the website aod.bmj.com.